Friends, happy Pentecost. It, Pentecost truly is a, a favorite celebration of mine in the Christian year. Um, I love the, the symbolism of it, the colors and the imagery. I love all the music that goes with it. And so the chance that we have, uh, I'm not on camera, am I? Uh, would you like me to move? Oh, you're moving the camera towards me. All right. I will preach to a different camera. Uh, I apologize. I got distracted. I do still love Pentecost, though, and I love particularly the music uh, that can go along with it. There's so much to work with, and so there are so many songs and hymns that go with it. And so I'm thankful for those who have helped create some different music for us this morning. And as we continue leaning back into being together in this place as this body, we will continue finding new ways to build and grow in our musical expression together and inviting um, even more folks to join us for that. So stay tuned as we keep trying to live into the joy and the diversity of the music that can live, uh, that can be a part of our worship celebrations. Friends, let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So we begin with death, in a valley of bones bleached white by the hot desert sun, it always seems to begin with death. I spent the last several days of this past week at annual conference. Being United Methodists, we are part of a connection that includes other United Methodist churches and clergy, and our conference encompasses the whole of the state of Michigan, and once a year, when viruses don't get in the way, we all come together to gather in one place to do some administrative legislative work and to simply be together. It is a little bit like church for pastors. We invite some laity as well as representatives and delegates of all of the churches throughout the conference. And I had a fun opportunity this last week. There was a service of retirement for all of the retiring clergy, and they wanted it to be a fun, celebratory moment, and so they invited various folks to come and speak into a microphone, and they happened to put out my name, and I absolutely said yes, because I can never turn down an invitation to speak into a microphone. They invited me to do a little bit of a poem, and so I wrote a poem for them, for the retirees, and I addressed what I felt needed to be addressed, which is that I know very little about retirement, because I am rather far away from retirement. But as I told them, what preacher ever lets a little thing, like not knowing what they're talking about, keep them from talking? And so I did a little bit of a poem, and I reflected on how, in fact, clergy often talk about things they are unfamiliar with. After all, clergy, we who have never died, preach all the time at funerals. Perhaps none of us really have any experience with that, but we have some sense of what might come after death, hope and new life, something we may not see but can almost touch, maybe hear or taste just a bit of. There is new life in death, and there is new life all over the place, in retirements, in life changes, in the changing of seasons all the time. There is new life that comes from death. And after I gave my poem, 
and I was walking out of, at the end of the service, I was stopped by uh, another clergy person who I know, and they said, Dylan, you did a wonderful job, I appreciate it, but your poems are always about death. Do you need to talk to someone about that? And I said, it's not my fault that the scriptures seem to insist on putting death and new life together all the time. Death and new life go hand in hand and resist being separated, even as we might wish to skip to new life without passing through the valley of the shadow of death. This passage from Ezekiel, written in the first person, in the voice of Ezekiel, tells us a story, a time in the midst of his ministry and a difficult time. He was called to be a prophet at a young age, just 25, and in a challenging season for the Jewish people. They're in the midst of the Babylonian exile. The Babylonians, this massive empire, had come and overrun them in a military conquest. And they had fought hard and valiantly. And they had died and they had lost. And so the Jewish people had been driven out of their home city of Jerusalem and out of their home country to a place that they did not know. But the grief followed them, the sorrow and the loss went with them. And so while it is not said what this valley is, it could be wondered whether these are the bones of the soldiers of the Israelites who had fought and died and been left behind. For the practice was for some countries in those times to leave the enemy soldiers who had been killed on the battlefield on the battlefield, unburied, and unremembered, their bodies left to the animals. And so the bones were dry, and it is clear in the text that it is important that they are dry, because they've either been there for a very long time, or everything else has been removed from them by scavenging animals, winged creatures who carried away what was not bone. And so it is a gruesome, tragic place to be. And God has swept up Ezekiel and placed him there. For God is building a metaphor. Because it's not resurrection, per se. We Christian people who know and live the resurrection love stories of resurrection, of death turned to new life. And so, in retrospect, it is, in many ways, a story of resurrection, but for the Jewish people who had a different conception of that before the coming of Christ, it was truly a metaphor, as God would eventually explain. It was a metaphor for people who knew what it was like to feel like dry bones, those who had been picked apart by the forces of death that crawl and fly across the world. People who knew what it was like to grieve and lose and to be a place that did not feel like home. It was a metaphor for people who felt like dry bones. And haven't we all felt like dry bones at some point or another? How many of us feel like dry bones now? 
We hardly need to recite the litany of the forces of death that have picked us apart as a people over the last several years. That litany which works its way into my sermons more weeks than not. COVID, gun violence, racism, sickness, death, and on and on and on. Don't we know what it feels like to be dry bones pulled apart and picked over, scattered across the ground, left in the hot sun of the desert. And God says to Ezekiel, what can be done? Can these bones live again? It is perhaps a good question. Can these bones live again? And Ezekiel doesn't really answer it. He says, oh God, you know But what does God know? Does God know that the bones cannot or the bones can? And so it is a question that lingers over the text and over our lives. Can dry bones live again? Who can draw dry bones back together? Who can bring life in a place like that to a people like this? God instructs Ezekiel to preach, to prophesy to the most dead congregation he will ever have. And so he speaks the word as God tells him to speak, and something begins to happen. There are noises. This is a delightfully poetic passage of Scripture. It describes the noises, the snapping and the clacking of bones coming together, and how sinews grow between them. Muscles appear on the bones. Bodies are formed out of nothing. And once where there was no people, there is again a people of a sort. The dry bones are gone. Ezekiel has a congregation of bodies. But that's it. Just bodies standing before him. And what sort of a relief is that? It may not be much of a relief at all. For we who know what it feels like to be dry bones might also know what it feels like to have a body but no life in it. To live but be unable to breathe. To continue doing what we have always done. To try to go through the motions of life without the very breath of life to carry us. They are just bodies before Ezekiel. There is an understanding in some realms of leadership of the challenges that come in seasons of change. When you move from one place to another, one moment to another, when something is left behind, and somewhere new must be traversed. And in this particular thought called adaptive leadership, it is understood that there are two different and competing ways to tackle this, one that is much more effective than the other, that in times of change, often we try to turn to what is called technical solutions. We look at the problems before us, and we look at what we have done before, and we try to apply the same solutions again. We try to go through the motions of fixing 
the solution, fixing the problems, coming up with solutions, doing the same things. And yet, to try to lean into technical solutions misses the emotion of the moment. Times of change bring dramatic feelings for us all. One example of this, one of the proponents of adaptive leadership, is to consider um, an aging mother or a parent who cannot drive any longer. It's a time of change, a season of change, and a difficult one. How do you go from being a driver to being someone who cannot, can no longer sit in the driver's seat of the car, the freedom that that brings? And so a technical solution to that would be say, well, here's a bus ticket. You can ride the bus now. Problem solved. You can get to the places you need to get to. But that's not much of a solution at all because it doesn't dive deep into the real emotional challenges, the uprooting forces that leave us so unsettled. Solutions need to involve a full embodiment of who we are and what we feel in moments of change. It requires breath, perhaps. Ezekiel, after he preaches and prophesies and has bones turned to bodies, is told to prophesy again to the wind from the four corners of the earth that they might sweep through that place, bring life to the lifeless bodies. And so Ezekiel does. And the people live. They live and they breathe. Breath is truly an important part of who we are. In fact, it's connected to the very physiological structure of our bodies. In times of change or in challenge of any sort, we have a tendency to go into what is, uh, what is sometimes referred to as the fight, flight, or freeze part of our brains. A more reptilian sense of what it is to live, responding out of these very fundamental biological ways. But that's not all of who we are or all of what our brain does. And so, in fact, if we take a moment to breathe, our breath is linked to what's called our sympathetic nervous system. It moves our physiological self from one part of the brain to another in the physical act of breathing that calms us and centered us physiologically and spiritually. For the two are so often connected in so many ways. In fact, I was introduced this last week to a practice I'd like to share with you. It's not very cleverly titled, but it is accurately titled. It's a 5-5-7 breath. It's a breath where you breathe in for five, hold it for five, and breathe out for seven. It's a practice that can be held on to and used in any moment. We need to ground ourselves in the spirit of God and who God calls us to be and who we are. It's a spirit that embodies us in the bodies that God has given us. Gives us a chance to feel deeply those things that are there to be felt. To skip past nothing and yet move forward faithfully. 
And so not knowing what has brought us all here today, what emotions we might be carrying, what seasons we might find ourselves in, or the changing of seasons we might be experiencing, I'd like to invite us to breathe in that way together. Begin with a breath in for five. Hold it for five. And a breath out for seven. God is in our breath. And in the breath, there is new life, which cannot skip over death, but moves us through it into new life. And when Ezekiel prophesied, preached to the bodies and saw them come to life with the very breath of God, God explained to him, this is the people of Israel. This is my people. A people far away from their home. A people grieving and lost. But I will bring them somewhere new. I will bring them home and give them life anew. God told Ezekiel, I am working. And so Ezekiel's task was to go back to the people, to proclaim that never-ending prophecy of God, that God is at work, that we who know what it's like to be dry bones will be given bodies again, and we who know what it is to live in bodies without life will be given the very breath of life. It is a movement through death and into life, For it always seems to begin with death. Even in the New Testament story of Pentecost, when the disciples are there huddled together in an an upper room, frightened perhaps, worried about what would come, the Holy Spirit came in a rushing of wind and in tongues of fire. Fire, that unpredictable, uncontrollable force which destroys and creates. For as God moves us from place to place, from death to life, there is always loss. There is always something to be left behind. But there is also new life to come. And so, we might hear the invitation of the Spirit to be drawn together as a people who know what it's like to be no people. We might hear the invitation to be drawn together as a people who know the forces of death, who have lived as bones, that we might live together with new life. We might hear the invitation to breathe in the Spirit of God who brings us new life. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite us to stand as you are able as we sing.